Hello, everybody. So I want to just say something to get it off the bat. This is the most nervous I have felt speaking since maybe 07. Um, It's a little bit more freaky than even speaking in front of Barack Obama because I didn't know him. Um, And so it is a really huge honor to be here with you. I want to say thank you to my mama. I want to say thank you to Emily Ellis. Thank you so much for hounding me. Um, And thank you so much for coming. So this amazing book right here, Emily Ellis, when she called to ask why she felt like I could even do this book. She was like, George Washington Carver, environmental. I looked at your biography on Highlander's website. Like, what does this connect? And I thought about it and was like, okay, I have a really easy answer for you. And it starts when I was a wee little child. Oh, so little. So... When I think about George Washington Carver, the first thing that comes to mind is of a picture in my parents' house on the wall that has been there my entire life. My mom went to Tuskegee, my dad graduated from Tuskegee, and from the time I was a little kid, all I remember was going to Tuskegee's homecoming. And seeing the band, if you've never seen a black, historically black college band, please go see one. They help you understand the meaning of good band. But I got both the band and the history. And while people are really celebrating Tuskegee Airmen, there's so much history at that institution. Both radical, not so radical, a little horrible, like the the experiments done on men, and also beautiful. And so that place was a place that I was steeped in growing up. And so when I think about George Washington Carver, I think about all that he represents. What does it mean that he came to Tuskegee in 1896? Does anyone remember what happened in 1896? Plessy versus Ferguson. So that is essential in understanding George Washington Carver coming from Missouri to Macon County, Alabama. So if you've never been to Macon County, Alabama, let's explain Macon County, Alabama. There wasn't a whole lot there when I was a kid. There was a chicken coop and Dorothy Hall. That's it. There wasn't a McDonald's. There wasn't nothing. So if you you were a vegetarian like me, you had no food. It hadn't gotten that much better now. But there was community there. But Macon County, Alabama was a small place. And most of that, at that point, almost all the African Americans were tenant farmers. And they were almost all sharecroppers. And so when George Washington Carver came in, he came in as a scientist. He came in as an academic, really trying to think, how do I take these concepts around botany, around ecology, around chemistry that I've learned in a classroom, and how are they applied to the everyday existence of poor black people here in Macon County? Which is not the same as just doing a nice experiment in your, in your lab. Those look different. It also didn't take into account what are the resource differences between what's happened at now Iowa State, at that point Iowa A&M, and at Tuskegee. Because the resources were vastly different. And so he was pushed and prodded, sometimes not wantingly, but pushed and prodded nonetheless, to go, how do we do experiments? How do we change the way African Americans and Southerners farm in the South? Because in 1896, what was king? Cotton. cotton. And at that point, everyone was dependent upon cotton. 
And so he felt if people could use the land to drive themselves out of poverty and out of dependence upon that crop, they could make it. Now, that may not be the most radical thing of all time. But considering we're at a place where most people didn't, don't even know how to grow anything. And if Octavius Butler's books come true, we'd all, my half of us would be dead because we don't know how to can or cook or sew. It takes things to a different level. So George Washington Carver represents so many things. He represents how you connect art with literature with science. And at that point, there was nobody that connected those things better. He's known as the first African-American conservationist who really wanted people to see the beauty in earth and the beauty in nature and to see that the earth itself had an economic value, that the birds had economic value, that the trees had economic value, not by cutting them down, but them actually existing. He had a whole different concept because at that point, only things that had an economic value for corporate and commercial use was important. So agriculture was about how much money can you make of what yield? And he was like, no, we can't just worry about short-term yield. We have to worry about long-term yield. Because if we only worry about short-term yield, then we're not going to actually have long-term success. Is it, can anyone think about anything connections to that now? <laughs> Short-term games. We're, we're in a microwave society. And so for that, he's really essential. The other connection with him, which is why it was interesting around how does Tuskegee connect to Highlander, and then I'm going to get way more into him later, is, so does anyone know what Highlander is? Anyone ever heard of it? Can someone please say what you know? Anything. Okay, what about Rosa Parks? She was trained there. She was trained there. Does anyone know where Rosa Parks was born? Tuskegee, Alabama. <laughs> so Rosa Parks was trained there. Anyone know anything else? We got started in 1932. Does anyone know where we're located? Newmarket. Newmarket. <laughs> Down the street. <laughs> so we were in Grundy County. Moved to Knox, Vegas. We were in Knoxville. We were urban renewed by Cass Walker. Love Cass Walker. And then we got to Newmarket. What most people don't know, actually, though, is that Tuskegee has a very long history with Highlander. So Charles Gamrellan, who was the dean of students at Tuskegee, was on the board of Highlander for over 20 years. And he was on the board because of his amazing work in Alabama and across the country in really pushing civil rights. And so you had... Um, and so there, a lot of this actually isn't in the book, but I'm saying it because it's important to understand him in context. So we can't look at him as an environmentalist without understanding what it means for him to have been an African-American man at that time. There's all these huge conversations, right, between W.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. People know what I'm talking about? So during the time, Booker T. and W.B. are going back and forth externally behind the scenes there's a different conversation it's like what needs to happen what needs to happen who can we get money from to do what we need to do I'll send you I'll shuffle you money over here I'll shuffle you money over here so what we need to have happen can happen for our people which is what people don't actually generally see and so the beauty of a Tuskegee is that you have both the radical Charles Gamwellen at the same time 
that you had Carter pushing a different agenda, but they were within the same institution. Both pushing. And so this comes out of a context where you have George Washington Carver coming from Missouri, coming down, having experienced racism, but in a very different way. And so he almost gets lynched his third week. And from that point on, he's like, what can I do to help stop lynching in this area? Because Plessy versus Ferguson had just passed. And between that and Alabama law that had just been passed, and it disenfranchised all of these black voters. And Reconstruction has now ended. And so he was like, what can we do to change the lynchings? What can we do to change things that he felt would not harm the Institute? And he felt would not harm his experiments. Some people don't think that he was very radical in his actions. I think he thought he did the best that he could do for his time. Which to me is what's really essential, right? Like for as a place like Highlander, who is really radical, who may not always have thought he was doing what he needed to do, what are those mixes? How do we have both of those to really make things push? The other thing about George Washington Carver is that he really prided himself on teaching students and teaching not just college students at the, at the institute, which is what most people know about, but really thinking, how do we teach kindergartners? So he has this saying that he always said that we have to start botany. We have to start teaching at the kindergarten age, at five. Because if we can change what's in your mind, and if we can change what's in your heart, then we will be done. So if at five years old, we can have people look and go, I need to learn how to compost. Right? So I have people that around me that hate composting. I think composting is fantastic. <laughs> he thought composting was fantastic. Because when he saw nature, he didn't see waste. He saw everything had a purpose and everything had a usefulness. Everything could be used again and again and recycled back and forth. And so before we have the R's, before we have recycle, reuse, reduce, that was him. He was organic, pre-organic. He really fought against what was happening with fertilizers and really wanted people to understand why it was important to stop using fertilizers in the ground. Because at that point, the ground had been completely saturated with fertilizers. But wanted to see how could people actually do it without having to pay $4.95 for some apples or for some grapefruit. Because now organic food costs more sometimes than conventional. Which conventional technically is organic. But it's all in the language. And so he was really pushing for it. So like he has this really famous quote around, he, saw, he went somewhere and, and saw a tomato. And he felt the tomato was a shallow hole. Because when he tasted the tomato, he said it didn't actually taste like a tomato. He's like, it was a hybrid tomato. It was chemicalized. And he's like, you, you've lost the essence of the tomato. But all the stuff that we put in the tomato. And he was like, now people are going to have to go out and find what a real tomato tastes like because over time we're not going to even actually know what tomatoes taste like because it'll be so long since we've actually had a real tomato. And he's important because when people a lot of times go, what does Africa, and we're in Black History Month, right? When people go, what is important in black history, they don't think about the fact that we were up front and saying we cannot have all these chemicals in our food. We don't get credit for that. Just like we don't get credit for many of things. We're only seen in a certain light. And George Washington Carver is really important, partly because he was such a multifaceted person. 
And he has so many different characteristics and so many different ways of being, which enables all of us to be like, okay, so how can we be multifaceted? How can we be strong in some ways, but have other parts of us rise to the surface? Any questions so far? Yes, sir. Um, Typically in Black History Month, they bring up George Washington Carver, and then they give you four or five sentences on peanuts. Peanuts, yes. And so can you speak to the peanut thing so we can get it out of the way? All right. I I was trying not to think about it. Yes. So, Mr. the Peanut Man. Yes. Peanuts, sweet potatoes. Like there was a soybeans. Those are actually the three that he did the most. Peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans. So peanuts. Do people here like peanuts? Yes. People like peanuts. Okay. Peanuts are kind of everywhere too, aren't they? Yeah. Every every store you go to, peanuts, you can get a peanut. So there was a focus on peanuts in many ways, partly because peanuts were readily easy to, to, to get. They're like, okay, if we're going to move from cotton, you have to find something people can grow that doesn't take a whole lot of work and, to grow. And the soil, so here's one thing, because just to say that I think it's some background to the peanuts and sweet potato, is that when he was in Missouri, the mid, he was in the Midwest. The soil there is a little different, right? Just a tad. So they were going wheat, they were going all kinds of grains. He gets down to Macon, Alabama, and it is clay. That red clay. He's like, what in the world can grow in this red clay dirt? And so he really had to figure out how do we work the soil to see what could grow. And peanuts are one of those things, just like sweet potatoes. And peanuts, he felt like, could have a variety of uses. What do they do? There's peanut oil, there's peanut this, there's peanut that. And so he was known as the peanut man. Because the man really did do tons of experiments on peanuts. I mean, it's kind of hard, crazy to think about it. I mean, he did like 330 experiments on the peanut. I mean, he, well, he came up with, he, did these, he, was, he would do these bulletins that would show like the 385 uses of the peanut. But in large part, he did it because he's like, if you are broke and all you have around you is the peanut, you might need to figure out how to have hair. If you want to have clothing dye, And you want to figure out how do I have different clothes because I've worn this dress now 25 times and I need to go to church next week and I want to look nice, then I need a cheap dye. And peanuts were a dye. So in many ways, he he did all those experiments with peanuts because they had so many varied uses. He was like, how can you use one thing to the nth degree? So if you only have two things, how do you really use it? And so that's why he, he became known as the peanut man for that. And because he just started traveling and the peanut corporations loved him. But one of the other things that I think is important is they wanted to call peanuts pickaninnies. They wanted to call it the pickaninny peanut. Right. Um, and so he had to really push and say, absolutely not. We do not like that bird. That is not a word that we're going to be used for the peanut. Because they were comparing the peanut then at that point to the watermelon. And so just like how watermelons were talked about, it's how peanuts were talked about. Yes? You said they used peanuts as a dye. How did they come about? How did they come about? So he was a really beautiful painter. And he, so he used both his dyes for his paintings and for other uses. And so he would go around and find all these different flowers to figure out which were the best dyes. So at the end, he ended up having so, he had a huge collection because he had no resources at Tuskegee. He really didn't. Any other questions? Yes. Um, so, Dr. 
um, Carver stays at Tuskegee mm-hmm. out of devotion to the race. Yes. Because he obviously could have gone anywhere. Wow. Thomas Edison offered him $100,000. Henry Ford offered him money. He decided to stay in the same, same little room. I mean, he had a really little room at Dorothy Hall. But he said he was going to stay in the same place out of devotion to the race. And at that point, I actually think he, he was trying to figure out where, where do I leave my mark? What is my mark? But he really preached frugalness. And he said the greatest thing was service. He said it doesn't matter what size kind of automobile you have. It doesn't matter what kind of clothes you have. The thing that you must do is give back. And all of the external is a veneer. What's really important is what you've got going on in your brain, what's in your heart, and what you are giving back to people around you and after you. And so that's the other thing why he said he needed to stay at Tuskegee. Is he said because it wasn't just about getting paid. It wasn't about having as much money. The, the interesting thing, though, was at the same time he said that, so during that period, he was traveling around to southern white colleges with the Commission on Interracial Cooperation to figure out how to really lower, lessen the amount of lynchings from 1923 to 1933. He did a lot of touring. So he didn't teach a single class from 1923 to 33. And so right when um, Booker T. Washington passed away, his life was drastically different. So before Booker T. Washington, he was actively teaching, but he had a whole lot of responsibilities. Booker T. was annoyed at him, so then he got less responsibilities. But there are some things he always did. And he really connected people working in his classes to people working out in the field. Right? At the experimental farm, at the poultry farm, at all those different places. After Booker T. Washington died, that's when he started doing more tours. And he then ended up going to Britain. He went all over trying to do things. He was asked to go to the Soviet Union. He was asked to go everywhere. A lot of places he didn't go. But he started doing much more touring at that point to really change how black people were viewed and to push forth a lot of his ideas. Any other questions? Um, one of the things that was also really crucial, was important to him, was how people were looked at. He always used to wear a flower in his lapel. right? So that's his trademark thing, was a flower in his lapel. And for him, it was really important to see God and everything. So that is the other thing that really pushed him in terms of his science. He was very spiritual and very religious. And he felt that nature was the doorway to which you see God. And that for him, God was science, was spirit, was earth. He had no distinctions. And so that's one way in which he really pushed back on convention. Because at that time, there was massive disagreements between what is faith, what is science. How do those two go together? Can you be a scientist and be a person of great faith? And can you talk about your work that you're doing in, in the realm of spirit and God? And that's how he saw nature. And he felt that if people could see God in nature, then they wouldn't destroy it. So if people could see God in trees, you wouldn't cut them down. If you could see God in the birds, you wouldn't shoot them. If you could see God in things around, then you wouldn't try to kill everything around you. And we wouldn't be trying to kill everybody around us at the same time. So that was the other thing that he really pushed all the time, was how do all those things connect and revolve and, and fit And how does he take that further? And so he got a lot of pushback from a lot of scientists. One of the things that that Mark um, Hershey says in the book was that people 
like in the 20s, people thought of him as like a really great scientist. That he was one of the greatest scientists of his days. And that now when we think about him, you read, learn about him in second grade, third grade, and you may not learn anything else. Like, so he said that he helped his son on a science project, on a project, and he did three projects for his little, for his kids. After that, he's not in a single book. From the time you're in high school till you're in college, you may never talk about him again. And he was saying, why is that? And he was, and he, what he said is a lot of the reasons why is he felt that in terms of scholarship, a lot of the things didn't come true the way he wanted them to. Because he didn't have the resources the way he wished he had. So the thing that Booker T. Watson said is that he was an impractical scientist. That he wanted to have a herd of like cattle come down from like Iowa. Then he wanted to have sheep. And then like there were all these things that he did that he felt he was impractical about. So he was both the impractical and the practical all at the same time. Um, there was a whole move at that point around how do we use plants and how do we use animal byproducts to push for commercial uses. Um, he, was, he was really doing things around chemology and really saying how do you move things and at the same time trying to have people think about not having big factory farms. So he really pushed against the big factory farm and the big corporate ownership because what, he could, what other people were trying to have him think about and he thought about was that the advent of the industrial farm was going to mean that black land was going to get lost. You couldn't have huge industrial farms and have small family farms at the same time. And so when you saw his, his thing decrease is right around, when, right around World War II and industrialization. And so what industrialization meant to the black farmer in many ways meant a lot of the death of the black farmer. And so a lot of his ideas kind of got lost over time. And so one of the things that he talks about in his book is why that is. And why is it he becomes so obscure and becomes, I mean, almost irrelevant in many ways when people look at history. And he's gotten swept out and swept over. Because when people look at his, when people look at his inventions, they're like, okay, well, he didn't actually have a lot of things patented. Because he didn't believe in patents. So because he believe, didn't believe in patents, he believed that everything that was developed is for everybody. He's not looked at as a great scientist. Right? Because he was like, he was a copy lefter. But, but what he did do, what, his, what he should be remembered for is being a copy lefter. And he should remember for being a really fierce environmentalist. And really saying, how do we take the environment and take the practical for what people actually need? Because a lot of times now when people think environmentalists, they don't think justice, and they don't think practical. They think, oh, this person over here just wants to save the trees, and I can't like, hunt my animals. But he was like, how do, we, how do we hold both? And how do people really understand nature for what it is, and look at nature and man as being in coexistence? And so that's what he feels like is a lot of the legacy of George Washington Carver, and where he can really... If we listen to more of what he said, we could move forward as a, as a people. All right. <laughs> so, are there, any, are there any more questions, thoughts, comments? All right. Yes. Father of sustainability. Yes, he was kind of the father of sustainability. Yeah. If I heard you correctly, um, I, heard, I heard kind of a prophet. He was kind of a prophet before his time, mm-hmm. so to speak. And I'm curious what other ideas he had that if they had made it into common society now, we would be better off. <laughs> can, you th- can you think of any other ones besides the... Um, 
Sustainable farming. Sustainable farming. The way he actually did teaching. So at that time, people were teaching very like boom, 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 right? So when you take biology class, you go in, you learn the Latin names. That's why most people hate biology. If they can't learn the Latin names, they're like, this sucks. So you have to learn the Latin names. You learn like what, I can't even, what family it's in. Then you learn what else this is in. He was like, that's so not important. He was like, people don't need to know all that information to be in class. <laughs> like, what you need to know is the relationship of everything together. So here's an example, which I, what I think would help. So there was a, there's a girl, and she was doing something with peanut butter. So we took her out to the Federation Southern Cooperatives, and I'll talk about his connection to cooperatives later, because that's the other big part. So we took her to the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which is in Epps, Alabama, the training center, um, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives got, was done during the Civil Rights Movement. So it was with CORE, SNCC, and SCLC, and was started as a way to really to think about how do we lift up like, the economic infrastructure of black people. So they have started credit unions, cooperatives, agricultural, consumer, all over the South. Amazing institution. So we took it to the Federation because the, some of the people that are farmers were growing peanuts. And we were, we were, you know, you know, you take your peanut, you hold your peanut, you crack it open, you eat. She had never done it before. She puts the peanut in her mouth and says, oh my gosh, it's, it's peanut butter. We were like, no, she said, no, it's Jif. We were like, what? She said, it's Jif. How did Jif get to be in this? We're like, no, baby. She did not understand how peanut butter was made. No clue. She had completed snap. All she knew is it was Jif. So then we had to take her through how peanuts grew, how the peanut became peanut butter, and then how Jif came to be a corporation with name on the peanut butter jar. <laughs> and she was like, oh. And that's one of the legacies that he really stressed, is while he was teaching teachers, he said it was really essential, even at that point, because they weren't even doing it then, to teach young people how things grew, what it took for things to grow. So you understand the symbiotic nature of, the, of how things grow, how things move. And so he, he created these guides for elementary school teachers, middle school teachers, high school teachers. And so the teachers that came through went on to teach all over and, and changed the way they did teaching. But actually, but he was stopped in that. Because they were like, oh, no, 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 hold on. So then there was a stop because they were like, we don't, that's not, we don't want to teach like that no more. That's not, we want, that's not how we want to teach. We like the way we used to teach. And so he was known as being a really engaging teacher. But he actually lost a lot of his teaching responsibilities because there was always these internal fights happening. So he lost a lot of his teaching responsibilities. But when he was teaching, that's one thing that I feel like. The other thing I think that he, he really was the beginning of the cooperative extension. People, people know, do some people know cooperative extensions? So cooperative extensions really happen at, especially agricultural universities and other universities. And they really went out and educated. So one of the things that he's known for is having um, a Jessup wagon, um, which a philanthropist named Jessup. <laughs> um, but he would go out into the community and teach people farming skills. And they st- it still happens today. They would have farming conferences. If you go to Tuskegee, they still have agricultural conferences. So many of those things that he did, they're still doing. And he would do these, so the bulletins would get published. But he knew that at that point, the literacy rate was like 70-something percent. So who's going to read a bulletin? 
So he would do the bulletin, then he would do a bulletin with pictures, and then he would go out and showcase how to do it so then their people could teach it all the different ways. And so those are the other things that I feel like we can learn since our literacy rate is not the greatest in the state of Tennessee, is how do we help people learn in multiple ways? What does that look like? Yes, sir. I'm always concerned that in many of the institutions such as Tuskegee University, mm-hmm. I even think of my own alma mater, archiving and preservation is at the bottom of the list. Yes, sir. And in the case of Carver, there were so many things, so many items, so many things that really are not accounted for. They're all gone. Not accounted for. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what is being done? Is there any project? Oh, I know there are some projects. Yeah. Major projects that are addressing this. So the question was around archiving. And a lot of times when um, think archive, archiving is the last on the list. Um, and I mean, I work at a place that's 80 years old and we're still pushing around archiving. I mean, like there's some stuff that's great, but you only get because of outside people. Um, and so one question is a lot of George Washington Carver's things are gone. And that is super true. There was a, actually a huge fire at a, where a lot of his things were kept. And so almost everything was gone. Um, so the things that are left, so the, he, the, the specimens that he sent to Iowa are still there because they actually did do archiving. There are some things like in Tuskegee, so the Carver Museum is trying to get itself back together. But when he left, some, there are some people who felt like Tuskegee did him completely wrong and that he didn't get what he needed. So a lot of his things are actually in the hands of other people. And so they're in archives other places, but not at Tuskegee. Hmm. Uh, your example of Jeff brings up the question of what do you what do you think personally is the state of literacy about the natural world today in our culture? What I think personally, I think is horrible. Um, so I don't just think our literacy about the state of the natural world is horrible. I think our literacy about the state of everything is pretty horrible. Um, I mean, I'm just being real frank, okay? Like, no, so what I mean by that is people don't know where countries are at all, right? People don't know how the Shah of Iran got there. People don't know any of it. So, like, I work with young people who literally come to me. And so I run a lot of youth programs. And they all come to Highlander on a farm, Okay. The funniest thing I've ever seen in my life for these kids came from Chicago. They're called the Fly Youth Squad. They're out of Chicago. They are fierce young organizers trying to save their community. And they come in, and I'm doing a thing with them, and they stop, and they look out, and they see a cow and a donkey. I get this. Oh, my gosh. Stop. I'm like, what's up? That's a moo cow. Y'all, no, no, no. No, 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 no. That's a moo cow. All these young people rush. And they go outside and they're like, oh my God, that's a moo cow. Like a moo moo cow. No, no, like a moo moo cow. Then they say, uh-uh, that's like a donkey, like a hee-haw donkey, yeah, like a hee Like they had never seen a donkey, never seen a cow, never been around a lot of grass, never seen a wild turkey. The wild turkey goes past, they're like, oh, is that gobble gobble? Gobble gobble. So, I mean, and we're not talking, and they're smart young people, but they have never seen animals. The deer goes by, everyone stops. The rabbit, I'm like, it's just the rabbit. 
it's not that you'll see plenty more same with the squirrel so I mean but like and that's just like animals so like they've never seen an animal so it took then we spent a whole hour and a half discussing animals why they were here what other animals that were in the area were like and this we hadn't even we didn't even go to the park Smoky Mountain Park we were just like in a rural area because they had no, it's like no concept. The only time they had ever seen an animal was on TV. But there is a resurgence of young people really wanting to, to, to grow again. And really wanting to start farms again. Really wanting to push like farmers cooperatives, farmers markets. Like there's, and I mean among all communities. But to go, how do we actually have sustainable livelihoods? How do we learn about how, where things come from? The farm to school movement is massive. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And then you see more and more, like schools now have gardens and have kids growing things. With the increase of that, I mean, the next stage is to have most of those things actually be what we eat in school food. Um, Because I feel like half of my job is doing stuff around child obesity and the craziness and and food (laughs) is kind of astounding. But I think people are are working to get it better. Any other comments? I wasn't going to go there, but I am. Do you think part of Carver's dismissal, you know what I'm doing? I know where you're going, but let's talk, let's go. Part of his dismissal (laughs) is because of his sexual orientation. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So Carver was, uh, the man was gay. And the thing that's real is that people talked about it a lot, and they were like, oh, he's really effeminate. Oh, he wears a flower. Oh, he paints. Oh, he crochets. Oh, the man never got married. Oh, he kind of had a guy that he was with at Tuskegee who we're going to get rid of as soon as Carver dies. So just, just like Baird Rustin is erased from the art history books around the Civil Rights Movement, and who would know that he's the one who actually pushed nonviolence to Dr. King, and who would know he's the one that actually planned the March on Washington? And we just sweep him away. It's the same way that a lot of things people got swept, he got swept away too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The book is a good book. I mean, there, no, I don't agree with everything in the book because I feel like he didn't completely um, get him as a black guy because he's white. I mean, you know, that, that happens. So I feel like there were things about his life that which really were important for to be in the book that weren't there to give context, but what I do think is the book hits on things that have never been hit on in any other book around him. And I think a lot of the other books that I've read kind of um, glossed over things. Um, And this one really was like, how do we be as honest as possible about his attributes and about some of the the failures? Um, And lifting up the environmental part of him, which actually doesn't get lifted up a lot. People just know about the peanuts or this work around the sweet potatoes, but don't actually talk about his other conservation efforts. Yeah. Well, thank you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.